Welcome back to another episode of Lady, You're Scaring Us. I'm Taylor. And I'm Hillary, and I don't know why Taylor's talking like that. I don't know, just kind of... Just because you're a professional now? Because uh, you're wearing out. khakis? First of all, they are khakis. <laughs> Taylor got a new job. Yeah. She's working with children. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> they love me. You're welcome for I'm the I'm one of them. That's true. I'm one of them, therefore I understand them. She's a gym teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I could be. Yeah, you'd be a good one. <laughs> now you're all in big... Big trouble. Yeah, I could totally see you as a PE teacher. Yeah. Yeah, Taylor got a new job. I just got back from vacation. Marisa's on vacation. And Stupid you're, idiot. No, you're going somewhere fun soon. No, I'm not. Oh. Why? Because I got a new job. Oh, they won't let you go? Mm-mm. Yeah, no, I'm upset about it. I don't want to talk about it. No, I was supposed to go see the Jonas Brothers in Philadelphia, and now I can't go. You said you were going to be like, fuck you guys. I did, but then, <laughs> I, then the adult in me yeah. was like, better not. <laughs> so they just flat out said no. Not in so many words, but it was really, I made the decision too. I didn't think it was smart. So I said, no. That's very adult of you. I, I'm changing. <laughs> I'm growing every day. Yeah. Old me would have been like, fuck you. Fuck this job. Fuck your mother. Fuck your father. I'm going. God, you gave out the Jonas Brothers for this. <sighs> we don't have to keep saying it because every time we say it, my heart hurts. Nick, just know I love you. And Joe. I stand with the Queen of the North. Go fuck yourself. Do you? Yeah, I do. Mm, did you learn more or something? No, I just know that the woman is 90% correct in all cases. Okay, that's a good... <laughs> in all cases of divorce. <laughs> but especially since his PR team was so quick to like talk about how much of a shitty person she was, mm-hmm. kind of makes you go... Like, I think one of the reports said something like, again, speculation reports, but said something like um, he had the children while she was on set working. He had to be a caregiver to his children. I'm like, mm, uh, that's called being a dad. yeah, I'm sorry that you had to be a father while you were on tour. Oh, I can't fuck all these fans. My kids are with me. No, that's like when people are like, if you want to go out with your girlfriends, they're like, oh, I have to see if my husband, husband can babysit. Ah. Uh, uh, no. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll check with my husband and he should be able to sit with the kids is a better response than I'll see if my husband will babysit. Yeah, your husband's not a babysitter. The babysit <laughs> that he baby seated into you. Right. Get out of town. Being a dad is not babysitting. Well, we'll get off our soapbox. Anyway. <laughs> we don't even have children. We don't have kids. <laughs> yes, we don't we have do. husbands. We don't have kids. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are okay. with our podcast. Now that that sad segment is over, we literally pause for a second. We're both like, huh. oh. <laughs> it's different when you say it out loud. I'm okay. Though. Yeah, I'm good. You're younger than me. <laughs> Not by you, that much. You have more time. Oh, shut up. Yeah. All right. So today we have a terrible story. Today we have a terrible story. Yeah. What is I feel like you have some of the most dark and twisted ones. Yeah. And they always make me go uh, yeah. I, I was listening to our Susan Powell one. Uh-huh. And some of it was just like god damn. And you were like I would fucking kill him. I would kill him. Yeah. Yeah, that one's a rough one. Mhm. You can't wait to hear what you have in store now. Uh Marisa said you saw that text where she was like, Hillary, I've got some ideas i got to throw at you. I still don't know what they are. I'm really excited to hear them. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, you did didn't. she send it to you in the in the group? Yeah. You just didn't read it? Uh, probably not. All right. Well, anyway, <laughs> I'm excited to see what she has in store. It better be good. I swear if she brings me another one that makes me go, I'm just kidding. She's a really good storyteller. Mm-hmm. Well, today I've got the 
Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Those ones are Ah, uh, Is it in graphic detail? Did they know a lot about this one? I can't remember. I Yes and no. This one kind of reminds me of the Delphi murders a little bit, just given how young they were. Yeah. And I didn't put a lot of detail just because they're children. And yeah, I feel like and, with, with children, yeah. it's different. Just kind of, yeah, yeah. So. You can elude. Right. Yeah. 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 I don't really like talking about uh-uh. children's private parts in detail. <laughs> so. Mm-mm. I don't like talking about adult private parts, and that's a lie. I love it. <laughs> love making dirty jokes. We're going to jump into the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. You ready? As ready as I'll ever be. All right. So. We're, um... Now I want some Thin Mints. I know. <laughs> I want some Samoas. Some frozen ones. Put them in the freezer. I almost got some, but I was like, is it in bad taste to do that? <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, I like Samoas. And, um, the Girl Scouts didn't stop. I like the Samoas and um, the peanut butter. Yeah. What peanut are they called? Almond. It's not. It's got a weird name. Mm-mm. No, you're thinking of the Tagalongs. That's like the chocolate no. covered peanut one. Dosey Dose. I don't know. <laughs> I, th- I don't know. <laughs> Cookies. Cookies. I'm a thin mint bitch, though. That's the only mint dessert that I like, because mint ice cream? Mm. No, you might as well eat toothpaste. It's disgusting. Yeah. But something about thin mints. They are good. It's I'm not a, a different mint person either. Yeah, they're, yeah, I like York peppermint patties. I used to, and then one melted in my pocket. Never been the same since. Anyway, <laughs> it's been a minute since we've recorded and seen each other. Hillary and I talked about everything in the moon in the past 20 minutes. Yeah, we haven't seen each she other also, in a week. She also, can I talk about the sticker that you bought me? Yeah. Okay. She brought me. I, I went to Dollywood. A, she brought me back a sticker and a magnet. And the sticker is of Dolly Parton. And it says, it costs a lot of money to look this cheap. And I've never in my life felt more seen. Yeah. I, I had something else in my hand, and then I saw that, and I threw the other thing down and picked that up. Taylor. And then she got me a magnet of serial killers. Mm-hmm. Isn't she the most sweetest peach in the world? I got one for you, I got one for Chaney, I got one for Marisa, and I got one for Amy. By the time they hear this, they'll have them. Anyway, right. anyway. Girl Scouts. The scene, Camp Scott. So, Camp Scott was a summer camp for Girl Scouts. It was located in Locust Grove, Oklahoma, which is 50 miles from Tulsa. The camp had been running for 50 years and would house girls from age 8 to 18. Camp Scott spanned over 410 acres where girls would spend two weeks participating in activities like swimming, canoeing, arts and crafts, photography, fire building, basic first aid, just Girl Scout stuff. You know, crafty stuff. I always wanted to go to summer camp. So fucking bad. Never did. I might have wanted to. I don't remember if I ever if I ever wanted to. I never did. Did. I never went. I went. My parents were the parents that sent you to vacation Bible school. Yeah, that's day stuff, though. Yeah, that was like the furthest I got to like a camp, quote camp. Yeah, we all went down here. We, all, we all went to vacation down here Bible, in the school. Bible Belt. Yes, we all went to va- vacation Bible school. But no, I always, always, always wanted to go to a sleepaway camp. Like, do you remember the Disney show Bug Juice? Of course I do. Oh my god, that was that was my. How does it feel to be living my, my dream? dream? That's how I was as a child when I watched that. I wanted that so that fucking bad and seeing parent trap i wanted a little camp boyfriend i wanted I little you did you <laughs> i wanted little camp drama <laughs> i wanted it. i still i wanted it i wanted, I wanted it, it so bad, bad. <laughs> yeah like well, when, is that why you went to like the adult one when you got older yeah <laughs> by the way amy and i did a deep dive on your instagram for fun and i have a lot of questions like what you you it seems like you were a 
a goer outer, an adventurer at mm-hmm. one point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were flipping through and I was like, Hillary's eyes are glazed over. <laughs> no, I didn't drink. I never, I don't drink. I never drank there. Never? Not even a little buzz. Mm-mm. Not there, no. Not even when you got the picture of Aaron Carter kissing you on the cheek. Mm-hmm. By the way, when we got to that picture, Amy goes, oh my God, who is this kissing her cheek? Oh my God, this is so scandalous. You think this was a boyfriend? This is, and I go, it's uh, Aaron Carter. You should have said, yeah, that's, that's and, a And uh, he's boyfriend. dead now. So she goes, oh my God. You should have said, yeah, that's her dead boyfriend. That's right. <laughs> That's her ex-boyfriend. He yeah, died. that's her boyfriend. He died. Yeah, don't bring it up to don't her. Don't bring it up to her. Yeah, I used to do a lot of fun stuff. You're still fun. By the way, I want to go to Amsterdam. Oh, it was great. Would you go again? Mm-hmm. Would you go with me to Amsterdam? Mm-hmm. I'll go I- anywhere with you. <sighs> I did not think that I was going to like it as much as I did because I was like, oh, Amsterdam is overrated. And I'm yeah. not going to like it. Loved it. Amsterdam. I want to go. Loved it. Well, actually, so we got some questions submitted and we'll we'll go back to this at the end. All right, cool. Sorry. But I yeah, I out. used to do fun stuff and then a ball and chain. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A ball and chain. His name is Denny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My child. Yeah. My cat. That's it. All right, back to the Girl Scouts. So, the camp was divided into 10 large units. These units were named after Native American tribes that lived in Oklahoma. Each unit could hold 28 campers and four counselors. And most of the counselors were girls that had once been campers themselves. Mm -hmm. That's usually how it goes. Um, I want to come back and, like, be a counselor to these mm -hmm. girls. See, I want to do that, too. Because, like, when I I was a counselor here, or when I was a camper here. I actually did it better than you girls. Than you little bitches. <laughs> You're a camp counselor with a little bit of an ego. The campers slept in large canvas tents that sat on a raised platform with four cots per tent. So, yeah, they weren't in like cabins, but it was just really big tents, basically, but with mm-hmm. a wooden floor. Kind of like a it's- yurt. Like, you know how yurts. <laughs> what the fuck is a yurt? Kind of like a yurt. If you were more well traveled, you would know. I don't, Educate me. What is an urt? A yurt. Oh, that too. <laughs> Um, whatever. Like a teepee? Anyway. None of the tents had electricity. So <laughs> Sounds super fun. The campers had to... In summertime in Oklahoma? Bring flashlights and batteries. I stayed when I did the camp thing, the adult camp thing. We stayed in one that didn't have electricity. We had to go to the Dollar Tree and buy flashlights and shit. But it was in Colorado. Wait, no, 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 no. Michigan. Michigan. So it was a breeze. Mm-hmm. Okay. Colorado would have been fun. I did one in Colorado, Do they too. still do those things? Yes, but they're not owned by the same people, so we don't do them anymore. So the big blob's not there? <laughs> like on heavyweights? They had that one in the Austin camp I went to. I'm really upset that I didn't know you about around, yeah, around that time we, of your life. We did a bunch of them. The main road that went through camp was called Cookie Trail Road. Isn't mm. that cute? So after passing through the front gate, the road ran between some of the camping areas and then the cabins where the camp director, the ranger, the nurse, and the cook and all that stayed. So they got to stay in cabins. All the kids stayed in fucking tents. The Great Hall, which was also used as a dining room and the swimming pool, were at the very end of Cookie Trail. From there, like from that main strip, and, you know, it was just like a bunch of trails and narrow footpaths. The director at this time was named Barbara Day, and she lived at the camp during the summer with her husband, Richard. All right. So first day, how fucking fun, right? Probably. <laughs> yeah. We don't know. I can imagine. Dude. Actually, I'd probably cry. I'd be the one that cried. Because you have to leave your mom. Yeah. No, I would have been like, bye. Yeah, maybe. But I, I was also know. the kid that like got on my bike and didn't come home to the sun went down. <laughs> 
And nobody knew you were gone. Nobody knew I, where I was. Because you're the youngest. Yeah. Um, or did they care? <laughs> right? Where's Taylor? I don't, I don't know. fucking know. So this is June 12th, 1977. 70s. First day of camp. So 140 Girl Scouts loaded up on buses and made their way to Camp Scott. For a lot of them, it was their very first time away from home. Others were very familiar with the camp and knew that they knew when the bus turned on Cookie Trail Road, here we fucking are. So 20-year-old D. Elder was the leader of the Kiowa unit that year. Remember, each little unit was named after a Native American tribe. Mm -hmm. So she was in charge of the Kiowa unit. She had two other girls to help her, Carla and Susan, who were both 18 years old. They were in charge of 27 girls, ranging from ages 8 to 10. I feel like that would be the girls I'd want to be in charge of. 27? Yeah. But that age, I think, would be the ones I would want. You're in charge of 27? Three girls. Oh, three girls. Yeah. Or in charge. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I you said D, one. Susan, and Carla. Okay. So three counselors, Okay. girls. Okay, 8 to 10. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's I like that's a good age range. Yeah. I wouldn't want the little... Right before they get bitchy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The Kiwi unit consisted of eight large tents in a semicircle. The counselor's tent was first, and it looked out towards the campers' tents, tents number one through seven. The Kiwi unit was the most remote unit in the camp. So it was like the farthest out, kind of. Okay. The campers were moved into their tents by 5.30 p.m. Carla took some of the campers to the Great Hall to set up their table for dinner, and by 6 o'clock, Dee and Susan were escorting the rest of the girls to the evening meal. After dinner, the whole camp sang campfire songs together. And normally they did this on the steps of the Great Hall, but they had to stay inside because it looked like it was going to rain. And sure enough, after singing for about 15 or 20 minutes, it began to rain and the campers had to run back to their tents. Once all the girls were back in their tents, changed out of their wet clothes, the counselors had to go around and button. They called it button down the tents. Batten down the hatches. Right. So what that consisted of was making sure that all of the canvas flaps were tied down to protect the campers from the wind and the rain. So they were just making sure everything was tied down properly and closed up. So when the rain cleared at about 7.30 p.m., Dee decided to have a meeting with her campers. So the girls gathered up and they listened as she explained camp rules. And she like handed out chores because some of the girls would have, they'd have kind of camp chores like, okay, you guys are gonna, you're in charge of setting up our dinner table. You guys are in charge of clearing our dinner table. Just Mm -hmm. that kind of little stuff. And she went over all the activities for the next day and who was going to do what and all that good stuff. Then they sat around eating Girl Scout cookies. I bet there was fucking unlimited Girl Scout cookies there. I mean, you'd think. What if that's all they fed them? (laughs) You have to be the cookie to sell the cookie. So they sang some songs, ate some cookies, and they did that till about 9 p.m. So between 10 and 10.30, the counselor, D went to each tent one by one to close up that front flap. She also took that time to kind of check in with all the girls. She had to spend a little time, a little extra time, at tent number seven to comfort a girl named Denise. The young girl was homesick. She was scared of the thunderstorm, and she wanted to call her mom to tell her to come pick her up. That's me. <laughs> Maybe that's why you never went, because your mom was like, you're too much of a pussy. No, there wasn't you're really any go. around us. I would have been okay. I would have been fine. I would have gotten over it. Mom, come pick me up. Um, no, Hillary. <laughs> which is funny, because I was the child that called at 2 a.m. for my friend's house. Will you come pick me up? <laughs> But my one friend that I would stay with had this really old house that was really fucking scary scary and had like a big grandfather clock. It was a scary fucking house. I believe you. 
Okay. I only called to go home from one sleepover, and it was because we watched The Ring, and I got scared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't know the house, and I wanted to go home. Yeah. It's the only time I ever called to go home from a sleepover, because I'm not a bitch. Okay. Well, but I might me. be if that ring bitch comes out of the TV. So, Denise wanted to call her mom and tell her to come get her. Dee reassured the girl and tried to, d- to distract her by, like, telling her, hey, you're going to have so much fun tomorrow. We're going to go hiking. We're going to do arts and crafts. Just really trying to, mm-hmm. you know, make her look forward to the next day. Right. She's like, you're going to have fun, I swear. And if you don't have fun and you still want to go home after tomorrow, we'll call your mom. That's what she told the little girl. It took a while for all the girls to settle down for the night. Dee had to step out of her tent numerous times to yell out to the giggling and squealing girls in an effort to get them to quiet down. Me and Marisa. Yeah. (laughs) Shut the fuck up. That's what she said. At 11.30 p.m., some of the girls started getting noisy again, and Dee was about to get up to go quiet them down, but then the other counselor, Carla, said she'd go. So she grabbed a flashlight and went to each tent telling the girls, hey, it's time to go to bed. After tent five, she didn't hear any noisy girls from tent six and seven, so she was like, They probably went to sleep. I'm not going to check on them. And so she went back to the counselor tent. Mm. At about 1 a.m., just as Carla was dozing off, she heard a bang coming from the direction of the Kiowa bathrooms. She jumped up, threw her glasses on, and headed that way. She was met by four girls returning from the bathroom, and she scolded them for making too much noise by slamming the doors. But the girls said, we didn't. We didn't slam anything. So they're like, yeah, we went to the bathroom, but we, we didn't slam the doors. Carla they probably had like buddy systems too. If they went, they had to take somebody with them. I mean, would you fucking go alone? Hell no. I'd be like, yeah, we guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I was like, it's ankle. But Carla was just like, whatever, go back to bed. So she went back to bed also only to be woken up again at around 1.30 by giggling from tent four. So she got up and again told him to hush, but she stopped when she heard a strange noise that seemed to be coming from the fence across the road from their tent. She woke up the other counselor, D, who heard it too. They discussed what it could be, but in all their years of camping, they had never heard anything like it. It was just this weird guttural noise. And they decided it must have been some sort of animal or maybe an animal that was hurt. So Carla said she'd check it out on her way to tell those girls to go to sleep. She grabbed her flashlight and glasses and headed back out. She shined the light in the direction of the noise and it stopped. But it started back again when she turned away and headed towards the camper's tents. She considered investigating it further after checking in with the girls in tent number four. But then she decided, you know, if it was some sort of animal. It's scary. Yeah. she. I, I don't really blame her. I wouldn't fucking go look either. No. Like, if it's an animal, it could fucking maul me. Mm-hmm. If it's a person, I don't want to fucking see him. And the fact that it reacted to the light. Right. Know. I would be. I do not blame her nope. at fucking all. I would not. Mm-mm. Nope, nope, nope. So that was the first night of camp. June 13th, 1977 was the was supposed to be. The actual first full day of camp. Okay. So Carla's alarm went off at 6 a.m. that Monday morning. The first night of camp was in the books, and today would be the first full day filled with activities. It would be a Monday filled with taking pictures, swimming, nature hikes, games, and then the day would end with songs and stories by the campfire. And Carla made it a point to get up early so she could be first in line for the hot showers because... You know, right. You're not going to get a hot shower with all the girls. Yeah. Early bird gets the fucking worm. And the Kiowa showers always ran cold. So she grabbed all her toiletries and clothes for the day and headed towards the nearest hot shower. As she walked in the direction of the staff house, she noticed something out of place. There were sleeping bags by the road. She thought that maybe they'd fallen off the back of the truck, like while everybody was moving in. Or maybe some of the girls were pulling a prank or something. And she went towards them to go pick them up, but was shocked to see a camper sleeping on top of one of the bags. 
However, after a few steps closer, it quickly registered in her brain that the camper was not sleeping. Can you fucking imagine? No, I can't. But when you say by the road, so the, so like on the side of the road. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think I think one the one on top I think was in the middle of the road. If I'm not mistaken, I'm, I could be. Uh, okay. Carla ran back to her tent in a panic. She yelled at Dee and Susan to wake up and quickly explained what she saw and said they needed to do a head count of all the girls. She's like, get the fuck up. We got to count. We got to make sure everybody's here. We got to see if somebody's missing. So the girls scrambled and got their clothes on. Susan and Carla ran to start at tent one, while Dee ran to the last tent, which was tent number seven. So, you know, they were going to each take an end and meet in the middle. So Dee went to seven, which was the last tent, and she instantly noticed that she had a problem. She threw back the opening flap and none of the girls were in there. That tent, so all the tents held four people, but Dee knew that unlike all the other tents, this one only had three girls in it because I think a girl didn't show up or something. Mm. So that tent was supposed to have three girls in it and there were none. All three were missing along with their sleeping bags. She also noticed that there was some blood on one of the corners of the nearest mattresses. Carla sprinted down the road to get the camp directors and the nurse. Susan walked towards the body, and Dee continued to go through each tent, doing a head count, making sure all the campers were there and seeing if maybe, you know, she thought maybe, maybe those girls went into another tent. You mm-hmm. know, maybe they, something scared them. They went in with some of the other girls. Yeah. She had already counted and recounted three or four times when she heard Susan scream. Dee ran over to Susan and told her to be quiet so she wouldn't scare the other girls. Susan hysterically explained that she had tried to pick up the other two sleeping bags, but they were not empty. They were zipped closed, and Susan left them that way. So the one sleeping bag had a girl laying on top of it. The other two just looked like discarded sleeping bags off to the side. Mm -hmm. But when she went to pick them up, they were not empty. Mm. Carla had been able to get help. Both the camp nurse, Marianne, and the director, Barbara, along with her husband, Richard, had jumped in their vehicle and sped towards the situation. Richard checked the girl laying on top of the sleeping bag for a pulse, but felt nothing. He tugged on the sleeping bag and found a tag with the name Denise Milner stamped on it. He ran his hands over the other two zipper, the zipped up sleeping bags and could tell that there were bodies inside. Mm. Barbara ordered everyone to not touch everything from that point on. She told the three Kiowa counselors that one of them needed to stay with the bodies while the other two would need to go ahead and get the rest of the girls up and ready for breakfast. It was a lot earlier than normal, but she knew that they needed to vacate the area immediately. She and her husband then went to the camp ranger, Ben, who told Barbara to call law enforcement immediately. Barbara went to her office and first called Bonnie Brewster, the Girl Scout executive director in Tulsa. Next, she phoned the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. The OHP in turn notified Mays County Sheriff Pete Weaver, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation or the OSBI, the local medical examiner, Dr. Donald Collins, and the district attorney for Mays County, Sid Weiss, were also called. Ben and Richard drove back to the bodies. Ben took over standing guard and Richard drove to the front of the gate to wait for the authorities. At 6.40 a.m., Barbara rang what they called the Great Bell outside of her cabin to wake everybody up. She then went to each unit and as calmly as she could told them the situation, the counselors, the situation. Uh She also instructed them to take their campers to breakfast using routes that would keep them away from the main roads and the trails. So kind of take them the back way so they can't see anything that's going on. Once all the campers were eating breakfast in the Great Hall, the authorities were let through the gates of Camp Scott. Just past 7 a.m., three county sheriff's vehicles and three ambulances, the medical examiner riding in one, congregated at the staff house. 
Dr. Collins, the medical examiner, immediately ran to Denise's body to check for a heartbeat. Then he kind of examined what he could without moving her body. You know, he's just kind of doing like a visual Mm -hmm. assessment. He noted that at 7.05 a.m., rigor mortis was absent and her body was still warm to the touch. So she hadn't been dead for very long. Mm -hmm. He left the two sleeping bags undisturbed noting that they had been observed from the time they'd been found approximately 6.15 until 7 a.m. and absolutely no movement or sound had been heard from the bags. Barbara took Sheriff Weaver, Dr. Collins, and an Oklahoma Highway Patrol trooper to Kiowa Unit Tent Number 7. They scanned the area around the tent and scanned the inside. They walked past all the other Kiowa tents, noticing nothing out of the ordinary, then walked the perimeter of the unit and the tree-lined fence. The entire Kiowa unit, as well as the bodies, were roped off by Ranger Ben. No campers or counselors were allowed past those barriers. After breakfast, all of the Camp Scott campers, except for the 24 Kiowa unit girls, were taken on a hike to Spring Creek. The hike was planned to last until lunchtime to keep them oblivious to what was going on at camp. And I gotta say... Can you imagine, like, we're talking about 18, 19, 20-year-old girls as counselors, like, pretty much running all this shit. Distraction. Yeah. Like, can you... And they just found a dead body. A dead body of a little girl. They're little girls. Yeah. And apparently they did a great job. So, props to them for fucking... I can't imagine... I'm like pretty being, good at masking emotion, so. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can do that. No fucking problem. But every time I would turn around, I'd be like, fucking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, my, honestly, my first thought would be like, I would be more nervous about taking them on the hike. That's true. Because you don't know what the fuck happened. And whatever happened to them might still be out in the woods. That's true, too. I didn't think about that. Like, they just were like, go. They should have just been like, arts and crafts in the fucking dining hall. Well, that's what they did with the Kiowa girls. Yeah. The Kiowa girls stayed at the craft tent doing activities that morning so they could be questioned later by the authorities. So, oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. But still, like you said, I didn't think of that. That's a good point. Okay. That's my, was my immediate thought. It's like, okay. But as police, I understand we're trying to force distraction, but at the same time, they've obviously foul play. Yeah. You don't know where the person is. Right. So, in groups of three, the Kiowa girls were taken from the craft tent to a screened-in porch at the nurse's cabin to be asked if they had seen or heard any strange noises during the night. None of them had. Mm. At 10.45 a.m., after the arrival of OSBI, the two other sleeping bags were unzipped to reveal the bodies of Lori Farmer and Michelle Guze. The agent who ordered the bags to be opened, Mike Wilkerson, was furious that nobody had already opened the bags to check signs of life. So he's kind of like, what the fuck? Why? What if they were still alive? But also blaming first responders or the girls? I think more so for first responders. Yeah. Cause but it, I get it. It's kind of a... You've always been told, oh, a crime scene, don't touch anything. But, but also nobody you can, confirmed that the other two girls were dead. Yes. Until then, when he unzipped the bags at 1045 a.m. And the one girl didn't die until 705? Well, she... No, she had already... She was already dead, but she... Like, rigor mortis hadn't set in or anything. And yeah, you don't... They didn't see them moving or anything, but they could have been very shallowly breathing. Dr. Collins did a preliminary exam on the two girls, disturbing them as little as possible. The bags were then re-zipped, and Agent Wilkerson gave the order for the three girls to be transported to the state medical examiner's office in Tulsa for autopsies. So we're going to talk about the crime scene. Okay. I want to see in my mind, I'm trying to like, do you have pictures? Not on me. Um, and my phone's over there. I'm going to Google it. I want to see how it was set up. Actually, hold on. I've got the book. Okay. Seeing it in the woods now. Okay, I have questions. Mm-hmm. First question. If this is true, 
This is the uh, map that I have. That doesn't look anything like the one I'm looking at. This is from your book? Mm-hmm. Okay. Does it show where the bodies were found? So back in the back gate area? That's the tent. So you can kind of see what the tent looked like. Okay. Here's So here's how their unit was laid out. So see, it was on the very, very edge. Obviously, because it's yeah, number seven. Yeah, I see the tent, but yeah, where, what on. about the road that they found them on? I don't think I have anything that shows that. And the only reason I asked that is because this picture, you see the road at the bottom? Yeah, that's probably the main... But why, if the girl was walking to the showers, how did she find the body back there? I think it said that she was... she. I think what it said was that their showers were always cold, so I think she was walking... To the main house? To a different place to get to shower. Okay, back to your story. I just had to have a visual. All right, so the crime scene. When OSBI crime scene technicians arrived, they quickly started identifying, documenting, and securing all the physical evidence at the scene. The exterior of tent number seven was photographed and then closely examined. No fingerprints could be found. The flap at the back of the tent was also found to have been unhooked. Tent number seven was the one tent in the Kiwi unit that could not be seen from the counselor's tent because the kitchen unit obscured the view, which I feel like they should have fucking moved that. Like, yeah. why would you want a tent that couldn't be seen by the counselors? They should. I just... feel like the counselors should have been in the farthest away. Well, they kind of had them in the middle. Remember, the counselors were in the middle and that the campers were yeah, in the city no... circle. Yeah, but that tent is still pretty far away. So, blood spray on the inside of the tent indicated that Lori and Michelle had been struck with a blunt object while laying in their cots. Their two cots were saturated with blood. All four of the cots were sprayed with fingerprint powder. Only one fingerprint was lifted, and it ultimately could not be matched to any known person. On the wooden floor of the tent was a partially smeared bloody boot print of a jungle-type boot. It had military-type tread and heavy lugs on the sole. The fact that it was smeared made it almost impossible to calculate what size it was. But they used a chainsaw to cut a piece of the wood floor where the boot print was and and they took it to the crime lab in Oklahoma City. So three items were found scattered along an imaginary line running between the back of the counselor's tent and the body. So they just found these items kind of like somebody had dropped them as they were going away. away. Yeah. The first thing was a guitar capo. I don't know what that is. It's is it the thing that holds the holds the strings down okay. and you clip it to the yeah, top yeah, yeah, or yeah. the bottom or yeah okay a guitar capo helps with a nice clean sound okay <laughs> I'm sorry I'm a violin player not a guitar player oh, well loser I'm just kidding that's actually like very impressive I, I haven't played in fucking prove it. twenty years prove it prove it a guitar capo was found on the ground five feet north of the trail leading out of the Kiowa unit kind of a random object. A pair of women's eyeglasses were found on the ground two feet further north from the capo. And then a red vinyl glasses case was found on the ground 16 feet north on the same trail. A red and white box flashlight was found with the bodies. So one of those big chunky ones, you know, that you hold. Old ones. Yeah. Yeah. It was found with the bodies. It had a piece of dark green plastic over the lens that was held there by masking tape. And a tiny hole had been made in the green plastic that let only a small sliver of light shine through. So someone had put this over the flashlight and made a teeny tiny hole. So when they shined it, it would only... It was a little bit of light, not a lot. Yes. Which is a very purposeful thing to do. Later, an OSBI technician took apart the flashlight and they found a partial fingerprint on the reflector. But ultimately, it could not be matched to any known person, nor were any other prints found on or inside the flashlight. 
So there's getting they're getting prints and they're not matching to anybody. A piece of folded newspaper later determined to be from pages 5 through 12 from an April 17th, 1977 issue of the Tulsa World was behind the battery of the flashlight. The technician tested the newspaper but could detect no fingerprints anywhere on the paper. Newspaper in the batter? Like I don't know. Maybe to hold it. I don't fucking know. To hold the batteries in. I don't I don't I really don't fucking know. Okay. Weird. Like me I don't I don't know. I have no Like was there a back I'm trying to picture it. There is a back to it? To maybe the, to the <laughs> I don't Maybe. Maybe not. Who knows? Then they checked the green plastic that had been taped over the lens of the flashlight. There weren't any fingerprints there either. The masking tape that was used to secure the green plastic was not checked for prints for whatever reason. So now we're going to talk about the girls a little bit. Okay. Denise Milner. She was the oldest of the three. She was born February the 5th, 1967. She was described as a kind and brilliant straight A student. She enjoyed tap dancing, going to the library, and she sang in the church choir. Incidentally, Denise's father was an officer with the Tulsa Police Department, and Denise had sold cookies to pay her way to be able to go to camp. She was also the only uh, African-American girl at camp. So she was the girl that was that wanted to go home with the counselor. She was the only African-American? Yeah. So, like, she was nervous, A, because it was her first time at camp ever. B, that probably makes you a little more nervous, too, you know? And she had already been upset she wanted to go home. Yes. Fuck. And also, she had been apprehensive from the start about going, and her mom said, just go. You're going to have a good time. Like, can you imagine? Her poor mom. Like, imagine how many things you didn't want to do as a kid. or like, But you, but your mom was like, go yeah, do it. You'll have fun. And yeah. That poor mom. <laughs> My heart hurts for her. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. And that night when it was raining and they told all the girls to go back and write a letter mm-hmm. home. Mm-mm. 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 And this is Mm-mm. 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 this is Denise's. Why would you do this to me? To make you cry. It will make me cry. I want to see it. Fuck. Okay. <laughs> cry, bitch. <laughs> yeah. I want to see you. Tater cries. All right. So this is Denise's letter. Okay. Dear mom, I thought you were gonna. What? Nothing. I thought you were gonna be an asshole. Go ahead. Dear Slim. Yeah. You thought that's what I was gonna <laughs> say? No. I'm laughing to cover up my sadness. Yeah, she's just trying to deflect. I know, because this is going to make me really sad. Dear Mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day it rained. I have three new friends named Glenda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Kathy, who is our little sister, and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. That's fucking sad. (laughs) You're looking a little... uh, you're looking a little sad over there. It's heartbreaking. It it's like, okay, I'm not a parent. Not neither am I, but I know when something's fucking sad. But just I am the world's greatest aunt. And just even thinking about one of them being like, I want to go home and thinking about them in that scenario is really like, but just a child in general. Like I said, think of how many I can. My mom probably had to tell me just fucking do it a thousand. Like I said, I was the kid that like, wanted oh. to fucking come home all every time I spent the night with somebody. And, and she's, she's like, just like, stay. Everything's going to be I fine. I did make some friends. You're going to have fun. I did make friends. And the other two girls that are friends with her are also dead. And she has a little sister at home. Mm-hmm. That hurts me. <laughs> yeah. So that was come home. Fuck. Okay. And think of the counselor too. Yeah. Which granted, she still wouldn't have been able to go home that night. She wouldn't have been able to, but 
the counselor was just trying to be support. Like, uh, yeah. nobody's at fault. No, absolutely. But just the fact that, I mean, in any situation, if you told somebody, hey, everything's going to be okay and it's not okay, you're going to feel like a fucking asshole. Well, you say that in situations where it's not going to be okay, too. That's true. Because you're trying to. But I mean, like I said, it's fine. We're fine. We're not fine. But you know, like I said, I can't tell you how many times I wanted to come home from spending the night with somebody. My mom's like, just stay. You'll be fine. You're going to lose another friend. <laughs> You want to know another reason I wanted to go home one time? This was a different friend. I had a thing about dolls, you know, like coming to life and fucking with you. That was my bugaboo as a child. That was my beer. What? My bugaboo. My Your bugaboo. Yeah. My uh-uh-uh. My no-no-no was dolls coming alive. So I was at one friend's house and I don't know why she decided to tell me this. She had these weird little fucking clown dolls and she was just like, yeah, they come alive at night and walk around. And I said, all right, well, I'm going to head out. <laughs> Sounds like some shit I would say. <laughs> I don't know why she fucking said it. And I, I'd stayed at her house before, like, many times. She said, yeah, they get up and walk around at night. I said, all right, well, I'm going to head out. And she was like, I'm just fucking kidding. And I said, it's too goddamn late. You said what you said. I'm you out. said what you said. It's in my brain. I'm not staying in this fucking room. Peace out. I'm calling Tracy. Mom, can you come pick me up? I'm scared. Anyway, Michelle Gouzet. Michelle was born February 23rd, 1968. It was Michelle's second year at camp. She was an active and athletic child. And when she wasn't busy playing on her soccer team, she liked to grow African violets. What a fucking cool hobby for a little kid. What the fuck is an African violet? They're purple flowers. And I think they have kind of fuzzy leaves. Anyway, and before she went to camp, she made her mom promise to water and take care of her plants while she was away at camp. Is she an 80-year-old woman? She was an old soul. So this is, this is Michelle's note. She wrote to her aunt. So she said, Dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I am fine. I'm writing from camp. We can't go outside because it's storming. Me and my tent mates are in the last tent in our unit. My tent mates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is shades of purple. I don't, I don't, I guess she was talking about her room at home. I don't know. Love, Michelle. And then Michelle had started writing another letter because there was another piece of paper that just said, Dear Mom and Dad. The last little girl was Lori Farmer. She was the youngest in the camp. Lori was born on June 18th, 1968. She was the youngest camper at Camp Scott. And her um, parents were planning to surprise her at camp the next Saturday for a birthday party when she was she was going to be turning nine. Lori was very mature for her age. And she was like a fucking little genius. I can't remember what it was exactly, but she was like super fucking smart. She's like really, really, really smart. Well, her dad was a doctor too, so. Okay. She skipped a grade in school. She enjoyed reading, learning, but most of all, she loved being a big sister to her four younger siblings. That's nice. Yeah. Also fucking sad. This was her letter that she wrote. Dear Mommy and Daddy and Misty and Jolie and Chad and Callie. (laughs) Fuck. Are you crying? No. Go ahead. We're just getting ready to go to bed. It's 7.45. We're at the beginning of a storm and having a lot of fun. I've met two new friends, Michelle Gouzet and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started raining on the way back from dinner. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now because there's hardly anything to do. With love, Lori. I still think the first girl's letters, not to compare, but the first girl's letters are really fucking love. Well, yeah. I want to come home. Yeah, that one fucking hurts. Okay. That was a little bit about the girls. Now we're going to go over their autopsies. Okay. So we have Denise. Denise was laying on top of a red and yellow and blue green sleeping bag. She was dressed in a white flannel nightshirt with pink floral pattern. And this nightshirt was gathered up around her chest. And across the front of the nightshirt was shiny black tape. 
The knotted end of a spiral-stranded light-colored rope or cord was under the tape. The cord passed up and around Denise's neck and was knotted at the left front side of her neck. The cord was so tight around her neck that the doctor had difficulty getting his finger behind it to cut it loose with his scissors. Denise's cause of death was listed as asphyxia by ligature strangulation, but she also had other injuries besides the damage to her neck muscles and the petechial hemorrhages about her face and scalp, which are the telltale signs of strangulation. The left side of her skull had a massive bruise and a sunken in fracture. The right side of her skull was broken into fragments in a circular area and sunken in. And so we have Michelle. Michelle was inside a red sleeping bag. She was wearing a flannel nightshirt with a blue and red floral pattern. Also inside was a blood-soaked pillow. Her panties were down between her thighs. A light-colored rope or cord was across her back with an end tied to each of her wrists. Both of her wrists were at her sides. Her wrists were tied tightly with a double half hitch knot. Then the free ends of the cord were tied again, this time in a single overhand knot. Michelle's official cause of death was blunt impacts to the head with lacerations and contusions of the brain. Michelle had six blunt impacts to her head with multiple fractures. The shape of three of the fractures, two on the left side of her head and one on the right, were described by the doctor as crescent-shaped. Now we have Lori. Lori was inside a blue sleeping bag with a red and white checked heart pattern. In the bag with her were a portion of a tan blanket, a green corduroy pillow... She was wearing a white Benton State Bank t-shirt and white underwear. A black flashlight with a yellow switch was resting on her right forearm. Lori's official cause of death was laceration of the brain due to blunt impact to the head. Also, all of the girls were sexually assaulted in some way or another. Mm-hmm. All three of them. Were you going to say something? It seems like the f- it, there, it's all awful, don't get me wrong, but it seems like the first girl... Is what was much more mm-hmm. aggressive. Yeah, killing. Yeah, should probably a fighter. They, they well, they've noticed that, and I'll kind of get to that later. An attempt was made to lift fingerprints from the skin of the girls, but it was unsuccessful. A black light was also used to look for the presence of seminal fluid on the girls' bodies, but there was none. It was a doctor's estimation that the girls had died between four and five a.m. Monday morning or six a.m. at the latest. So now we're going to get to the investigation. Okay. When the girls from the other four units came back from their hike, a counselor reported that one of her campers, Christy Jones, might have some useful information. So this was a camper that was not in the Kiowa unit. Because remember, they already interviewed them. Right. And they said they didn't hear anything. But Christy told the interviewers that she thought she had heard some male voices behind her tent during the night about six trees back, but she hadn't been able to understand anything they had said. Another camper said they had been woken up by a scream during the night, but a counselor dismissed it and told them to go back to sleep. Which again, I mean... (laughs) Heard a scream. I can't go to sleep. Yeah. That's a hard scenario. I mean, I probably would have said the same thing. Just go back to sleep. Yeah. But the guttural noises. That was the diff. That was the people from the actual Kiwi unit. But still, like, again, I wouldn't have fucking wanted to check that out. I wouldn't have been saying, let's go see what that is. No. So. I forget each unit has its own set of counselors, Mm -hmm. too. And campers, yeah. Parents were notified that all the Girl Scouts would be returning by bus that afternoon, and they needed to be there to pick them up. The parents weren't told the truth about why this was happening, but by the time their daughters arrived, they had heard through the grapevine that three still unidentified girls were murdered. So the parents were waiting. They hear this. And they're they're just waiting for their kids to to get off the bus. To see if their kid walks off the bus. Fuck. Um, Oh, my God. Ugh. Sorry, that just resonated with me. The campers were (sighs) just told that camp was being canceled because there was a problem with the camp's water supply. In one of the documentaries that I watched, you know, they were saying that some of one of the girls was saying 
like when she did find out what happened, they didn't even know what being murdered meant. You know, like these are little girls, little kids. Yeah. yeah. So think, imagine having to fucking ex- explain that to your fucking kid. I, I would have just been like, yeah, the water supply was the water up. supplies was fucked up. Yeah, she had and to- let them find out later in life what really happened. <laughs> Keep them innocent and then get blamed. My mom never told me the reason. Or I- no, because the next year at fucking Girl Scout, well, they won't be going back to another fucking camp. I'll tell you that. But the next Girl Scout season, whatever you want to call it, they're probably like, oh, my God, they'll hear it from another little kid of like, that's not what really happened. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, either way you look at it, you're probably fucked. You'd have to tell them. Some kids were murdered. What does that mean? I'll tell you later. Uh, When you're older. See, that's the thing about being a parent that I'm like, I don't know what the fuck to do. There's many things about being a parent (laughs) that I don't. I'm just going to call my mom and be like, mom, I'm scared. (laughs) Come get me. (sighs) Just the questions alone. Yeah. I had some fucking questions when I was a kid. And most of them are just like very irrelevant. I'm sure. <laughs> like asking my grandmother. You were probably the why. Why? Why? Uh, why? No, I was more so like, my grandmother gets mad at me because she's a storyteller. Everything's magical and everything's this and everything's that. And all of my other like siblings and my cousins would always be like, oh yeah. And she'd tell these big immaculate stories and I would just, she said I would just look at her and be like, okay. <laughs> That's not real. Or she'd be, she'd do something like she would skip a rock across the lake and go, oh my God, it's a flying rock. And I would go, no, it's not. It's not fucking flying. And I remember one time I asked her very seriously what she did during the flood in Noah's Ark. (laughs) Yeah, she loved you. She's ancient. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But she stole, she told the fucking story like she was there, damn. <laughs> so the parents of the three victims were called and told by the Girl Scout executive, Bonnie Brewster, that their daughters had died in the night in an accident. Mm, imagine having to deliver that news. They didn't know that the girls had actually been murdered until later. What the f- So they just... In an accident? Lori Farmer's dad said that he got a call at work that just said something happened and your daughter passed away during the night. No, bitch. That's not what happened. We didn't get into an accidental blob suffocation. Like, something... Your daughter was murdered at the camp. So after all the campers left Camp Scott, the staff and the counselors had to stay for interviews. That's wild. Their fingerprints were taken and their shoes were checked by the OSBI. By 3 p.m., the OSBI had set up a mobile command center at the camp. At 6 p.m., a man named Jack Schroff, who owned a small farm a mile west of the camp, called the sheriff's office to report that his farmhouse had been burglarized between 3 p.m. Sunday and 3 p.m. Monday, which was the window of time during which the Girl Scouts were killed. Schroff explained that he had left on Sunday and then returned 24 hours later on Monday with a friend to help him load up some cows to take to the slaughterhouse. When he went to go inside to get a beer for him and his friend, he saw that the sliding glass door at the front of his house had been pried open with a crowbar. All of his beer was gone. Uh, My beer. Whoever had broken in made off with two six-packs of bottled PBR. Fuckers. I stole my bird, Janus. He said that his ranch was kind of a frequent target for break-ins because he didn't live there full time. Like he lived like a remote hunting lodge, kind of. It was a. It was like he had a ranch, but he lived in I think Tulsa. So he, I guess he would just kind of go and. Well, obviously, there's no animals on his ranch. There are. Or they just. <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't fucking know. Okay. He wasn't there full time. Okay, so it he wasn't probably like went on the weekend out of the ordinary to have his house broken into. But that's a red flag to me. Because <laughs> why is that just okay yeah, with you? He's like, I don't know. I don't know. I guess somebody needed it more than I did. <laughs> no, that's not how that works, sir. 
So, yeah, he'd never reported any of the break-ins before. But that same day when he was back on the road headed to Tulsa, he turned on the radio and heard about what happened at Camp Scott. And he was like, yeah, maybe I need to call the police. So Jack was asked to return to his farm that same evening, and he did. He made it back just before 10 p.m. He was met there by Mays County Sheriff deputies, plus the DA's investigator. Jack led them to the house and showed them the sliding glass door that had been pried open and then pointed out where his beard had been. The investigators told Jack to look and see if anything else had been missing. And it was then that Jack noticed that like some spam, some pork and beans, some bread and some other food items were missing from his kitchen. Now the spam I can get behind. A roll of black duct tape had been lying on top of a window air conditioning conditioning unit and then a coil of nylon rope were also gone. Mm. To make it clear what type of rope, Jack took a deputy and showed him some rope that he had used to hang up his dinner bell that he had used from that same coil that was missing. So he was like, it was this type of rope specifically. So the deputy asked if they could take that, you know, to compare it to the rope the girls had been tied up with. And Jack said, yeah, sure. A waffle style jungle boot print, the same type was in the cabin, was also seen on an entry rug by the sliding glass door. Three more prints that matched it were found in the freshly rain-soaked dirt around the house, but not a single print was found inside the house. Before the three investigators left, Jack Schroff made a comment about how odd it was that his gun, which had been sitting by the door, had not been touched. Because those are big Yeah, you can take it if you're going to yeah. break in. Right, take it and just fucking have it or sell it. Mm-hmm. The Schroff property was dusted for fingerprints. All of the fingerprints were eventually accounted for. Like, they were able to match them up just to, you know, him and people who yeah. had been there. Jack's phone records were checked to see if he had made any calls between the hours of the Girl Scout stuff. Nothing had. So on the next day, which was Tuesday, the 24 surviving campers from the Kiowa unit had to go back to Camp Scott. Together with their counselors, they were taken back into their tents to inventory their possessions to see if anything was missing. Counselor Susan discovered that her blue denim purse was gone. She had put it under the edge of her cot, almost directly beneath her pillow. Inside was a pair of sunglasses and a tan plastic case, a comb, a brush, and that was all gone too. Counselor Carla's spare glasses and the red with silver gold trim case that held them were also no longer on the crate that was next to her cot. She also had a guitar capo, which was missing, that had been sitting on that same crate. Counselor D's stuff was all there and undisturbed and all the 24 Kiowa campers, things were found intact with their tents as well. So the things that were missing were the things that were found. Random. Some of the things that were found. But remember the capo they found outside. Mm -hmm. A wider search was conducted through the entire 410 acres of the Camp Scott property. They ended up finding some scraps of green plastic and masking tape lined together with a crowbar and three PBR beer bottles next to the perimeter of the fence, about 200 yards southwest from the Kiowa counselor unit. Ranger Ben's cabin and property were searched. Both he and his wife were given lie detector tests, which they passed. Blood, hair, samples, fingerprints were also taken from them. They were cleared of any wrongdoing. The camp director, Barbara, Richard, they were questioned, tested. They were cleared, too. Jack Schroff was asked to go to Camp Scott to see if he could identify any of the stolen items. He said the black duct tape was similar to his, but like fucking duct tape's duct tape. But he denied recognizing the red and white box flashlight. Some people were suspicious of him. They saw him as a possible suspect who may have accidentally dropped his flashlight and tape with the bodies and was now worried that his fingerprints on those items would identify him and then feigning a robbery would be the perfect way to cover it up. Yeah, that's kind of where my head was going. But like, not that not that I think that he's guilty, because if he was... I don't think that he's guilty, but 
that was what I mean is like my head went there like, oh, well, he's going to be object number one because A, B, and C was found and it was at his house. But well, then again, he literally laid out this rope, this, this, this. Right. If he had done that, that wouldn't make sense. People have done stupid things. True. While the OSBI was trying to rule out the farmer, Jack, as the killer, they got a reliable tip that an escaped prisoner named Gene Leroy Hart and another man were living in a cave three miles from Camp Scott. I've seen and heard some people say Gene Leroy Hart, and I'm like, that's Leroy. What are they calling it? Gene Leroy Hart. No, that's Leroy. That's Leroy. Don't try to fancy it up, dirt. So this crime actually fit the M.O. of the twice-escaped local fugitive Gene. Twice. Twice. The 33-year-old Cherokee man was a convicted rapist who had broken out of the Mays County Jail for a second time four years earlier. Four years. Okay. And this sounded like the perfect lead. Yeah, no shit. But why was he in jail for the first... Why was he... Sorry. Rape. Continue. Rape. I said that. Sorry. Ah, My apologies. We'll we'll talk about... Okay. We'll talk more about him. Okay. So Sheriff Weaver was requested by Agent Carrie Thurman to order aircraft flyovers over the area using heat-seeking technology because they said he was in a cave, you know, and they did that, but they didn't find anybody. On Wednesday, three tracking dogs arrived from Pennsylvania. These were supposed to be like the best fucking dogs ever. The following morning, Thursday, one of the dogs, they, I guess, got him to smell that muddy entry rug Mm -hmm. that had been taken from Jack's porch. The dog was then taken in the direction of the Kiowa area where he picked up a scent and began to trail it. And investigators watched as he went to tent number seven and sat down on the on the front step and then sniffed the tent and indicated again, which meant that he had located the scent. So the same scent that was on the rug, he found in the tent. Yeah. After they got him to scent on the rug again, he went to where the bodies were found and sat down. Mm. So the scent was there, too. The dog was then taken to the perimeter of the Kiowa unit behind the tent. And he, again, they used that same rug. And then he kind of walked and kind of made some circles. And the investigators kind of followed where he had went, like got on their hands and knees to scan every area that he walked. And they ended up finding the same boot prints from the tent and Jack's house. The dog would also take them to Jack's farm and then another man's house. That man's name was John Cavalier. He told the authorities that he had been home on the night the girls were killed. He said his dog, Hooli, never barked that night. And he said his dog fucking barked at everything. So he was like, there couldn't have been anything near my house or the dog would have fucking went wild. Yeah, Um, like most do. Yeah, but he did describe hearing two unusual screams coming from the camp at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. But he didn't go check it out or anything. Okay. But I mean, again, again, like... you wouldn't. Would you? Uh Uh-uh. You wouldn't. You're like, oh, it's a bunch of girls at camp. Right. Screaming. I don't know. But I feel like, I don't know. I just. You feel like you would know the difference between the screams? Like a playing scream and like a. I don't know. It could have been. uh, Yeah. Who's to say? On Thursday, a couple of men were squirrel hunting and came across a cave that looked like someone had been living in it. And remember, they had gotten a tip that that Gene Hart had been living in a cave around that area. So the cave had like some bread sacks with flour in it and then a pile of human crap. (laughs) <laughs> and then the person had used wadded up newspaper for toilet paper. Mm, newspaper. And they quickly hurried back to their truck and got the police. When the officers arrived at the cave with the hunters, they noticed several items lying on the ground. 
Their eyes immediately locked onto a tan plastic eyeglass case, a pair of green cotton gloves, and then 30 yards up the slope from this little cave was a root cellar. To the left of the cellar entrance was a partial roll of masking tape with some green plastic stuck to it. Scattered in the area was like just rubber tubing, cans, food cans. Like you could just tell somebody had been staying there. Then they saw the feces in the toilet paper newspaper, which was from the same paper that the flashlight Mm. uh, newspaper. And they also found some pictures, like some photographs. So they took those. Meanwhile, they learned that the old root cellar next to the cave had a house on top of it at one point. Whose house was that? Leroy. Gene Leroy Hart's house. So that's where his childhood home used to stand. Two other caves were also searched. In the second cave, they found a cigarette butt, which they tested for saliva, and it was determined to be from someone with type O blood. Because remember, this is in the 70s. Really, the only thing that they could test was blood type. They didn't have like DNA Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, In the third cave, located a mile from Camp Scott and on Jack Schroff's property, officials found a message written on the wall of the cave that read, the killer was here. Bye bye, fools. But that also could have just been some fucking jackass. I don't know. It's a little too convenient for it to be that. <laughs> the sunglasses in the tan case found at the first cave were soon identified by Counselor Susan as having come from her stolen denim purse. So that meant whoever had been in that little cave had been in her tent. Mm-hmm. But the two photographs they found weren't Susan's. She said, those aren't mine. To try to identify them, they posted them on the, like, they gave them to news stations who, and like newspapers broadcasted them said does anybody know who this is yeah a high school teacher from oklahoma recognized the pictures as having been taken at his wedding his wedding a man named lewis Lindsay, who was also from oklahoma he said was his photographer lewis Lindsay was a records officer that had retired from the granite reformatory a prison mm-hmm. and moved to westminster california so the westminster police department tracked him down and told him to call the osbi and he did and he said whoever they, they knew the date of the wedding. And he said, okay, well, whoever was working in the dark room at the time would have been who developed those pictures, you know, because it was back when they would go in the little room and yeah. dip it in the fucking shit and whatever, whatever. Dip it in the fucking shit. <laughs> the OSBI looked it up and the photos were developed by none other than escaping Jenkins. Leroy Hart. On June the 23rd, 1977, exactly 10 days after the murders, the DA, Sid Weiss, held a press conference and announced, we have our man. And an arrest warrant was issued for Gene Hart on triple murder charges, but they still had to find him. So now let's talk about Leroy. Gene Leroy Hart was born on November 27, 1943, at the Claremore Indian Hospital in Oklahoma to a teenage mom named Ella May. Gene never knew his dad who was actually married to another woman and had children with her. His mom continued to have children with other men, which left Gene with three brothers and three sisters. So life was kind of tough for him in that aspect because his mom had a lot of trouble taking care of an ass load of kids. Yeah. Gene found his escape through football. He excelled at football. He played both offensive and defensive positions. His coach described him as the best boy I ever coached, and his name was in the newspaper constantly. For the first time in his life, Gene was a somebody, and he was even voted best athlete by his senior class. When he graduated in 1963, Gene decided to marry his high school sweetheart, Patricia, instead of going to college on a football scholarship. Almost immediately, Patricia gave birth to a son. And needless to say, Gene wasn't really prepared for that type of life. Yeah. He quickly became 
overwhelmed. And this manifested into him just being like mean and hateful. A dirtbag. Yeah. In June of 1966, Gene decided not to go to work that day. Instead, he went to a place called the Fond du Lite Club, which was a popular nightclub in Tulsa. Fond du Lite. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it was an interesting name. Fond du Lite. Two females. I found the light. 19-year-old Kathy, who was six months pregnant, and 18-year-old Marjorie, who was four months pregnant, were leaving the club at around 2 a.m. And let's not wonder why two pregnant ladies were at the club. We ain't shaming. Pregnant ladies can have... It's called... Can go to the club. La Fondola. What's it called? <laughs> the Fondalite. Yeah. Fondalite. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a... Mm-ts, 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 no, and it's it doesn't... Uh, it could be... A it sounds like a piano fucking, bar. Yeah. And back then, they were probably smoking cigarettes and drinking scotch and whatever when they were pregnant. So who knows? Yeah. Um, I don't care. They're minding their business. They were leaving the club at around 2 a.m. As they were getting into their vehicle, Gene came up behind them and tried to get in the car with them. <laughs> they resisted until he pulled out a gun. Mm. He took both of their purses and made them get into the trunk of his car. After that, he would drive around a while. He'd stop, take one out, rape them, put them back in, drive around, take the other one out, rape them, put them back in, drive, you know, just driving around. Just to do it. Assaulting them. And they said, so both of the girls wore glasses. And oddly enough, he like took their glasses and was trying them on because apparently he had very bad vision. So this glasses thing is a trend, as you can see. Yeah. So after he did this, he multiple times you know just assaulting them whatever whatever he tied them up gagged them put tape over their eyes and mouth raped them more and then he just kind of put them in some bushes took their shoes and just kind of left them for dead (laughs) why why did he have to take their shoes he already took everything else i guess so they couldn't bitch i can fucking walk on i'm fine (laughs) i'm not gonna be like oh a rock i guess i'll just sit here right i have no shoes i don't know yeah, and obviously, thank- and luckily, thankfully, both girls were able to g- get help. Yeah. Thankfully. Mm-hmm. When Gene was caught, he confessed to kidnapping, raping, and sodom- sodomizing the two women, and he was sentenced to three 10-year prison terms to be served concurrently. After that, his wife divorced him, took their kid, changed the names, and fucking left. At Oklahoma's Granite Reformatory, Gene was a model prisoner. And he was assigned a job with prison records keeper, Lewis Lindsay. Together, they were responsible for the intake process of prisoners, which included getting their fingerprints and taking their pictures. Lewis Lindsay trained Gene to do all these tasks. By permission of the warden, Lewis was able to use the prison darkroom for his own side photography business that he ran, which, okay. Okay. Yeah, you can conduct your own business in our dark room. Yeah. Whatever. So he taught Gene how to take negatives into the dark room and process them, turn them into photos. Mm-hmm. One time, Lewis actually put in a request to the warden to take Gene off the prison grounds to go with him to a wedding he was photographing to help him carry all the equipment and all that. The warden was like, uh, no, no, I don't think I'm going to let you do that. So Lewis had to go by himself, but he did bring the pictures back. He brought them back and... Gene developed them for him. But what he didn't know was that Gene created a couple extra copies of some of the pictures because he wanted them for himself because one of the women in those pictures looked a lot like his ex-wife, Patricia. Okay. After 28 months, Gene Leroy Hart was paroled Hmm. in March 1969 by unanimous recommendation of the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board. He went back to his mom's house in Lucas Grove. I'm sorry. Why? Because he was a model prisoner. And, you know, people only rape people one time. Yeah, no. No? 
No, that's no. not how that goes. Oh, damn. Guess I'm no, wrong. It's not how that works, Hillary. Well, that's how apparently some fucking people think it works, but yeah. whatever. So when he went back home, he had to go back to his mom's house because his wife was smart and fucking left him. And he was a fucking convicted rapist. So his chances of finding a job were pretty much non-existent. So he began a career as a burglar. But he wasn't a very smart burglar because one night he broke into the apartment of a Tulsa police officer who had just gotten off work. Gotcha, bitch. Detective Heather Campbell was still awake when she heard him trying to come through the door. She pulled out her fucking pistol. Get, get. And said, get the fuck away. And he ran scared and she called her fucking friends. So when the other cops came, they, you know, they all responded to her call. They fucking heard Gene upstairs trying to break into somebody else's fucking apartment. He's stupid. Yeah. Yeah. He's not very bright, that one. So they arrested him. And when they searched his vehicle, they discovered items from three other burglaries. One of the wallets found had reportedly been removed from a nightstand six inches from the head of a sleeping victim. So Gene seemed to like entering occupied dwellings during the night and remember that counselor's purse was close to her head so he just got uh, some kind of fucking thrill can you oh that gives me the heebie jeebies i don't like it mm-mm. so because he was on parole for the previous kidnapping and rape charges gene's sentences added up to a maximum of 305 years so this time assuming he was going to be in prison for the rest of his fucking life yeah he went to what was called big mac which is the state penitentiary in McAllister, Oklahoma. Four years later, on April 25th, 1973, Gene had to go back to the Mays County Jail for a post-conviction relief hearing on the kidnappings and the rape incident because he wanted to withdraw his guilty plea. <laughs> so they took him back to that jail so he could do that. Two days after he arrived at the Mays County Jail, Gene and fellow inmate Larry Dry escaped by sawing through the bars of their cell with a file. Where did they get the file, you might ask? From Gene's mom, who brought it to him hidden in a Bible. The two fugitives were caught 11 days later when a fireman noticed smoke coming from a window of an abandoned house. The fireman assumed that the house was on fire, but what was really going on was an ill-fated attempt to make coffee using a trashed coffee pot. Gene and his cellmate were returned to the jail. But a few months later, September 16th, 1973, they escaped again while being left unattended out of lockup. This time they split up. Larry Dry was apprehended rather quickly, but Gene was not. Hmm. People would claim to see Gene around town, but they said he'd be there one minute. <laughs> That's Gene and them. That's Gene and them. <laughs> and literally, before you could even say that, he, that, he'd be fucking gone. So they were like, he was there and then he fucking wasn't. But I swear to God, that was Gene and them. I swear. Gene and them. Now, That's crazy. So that he escaped the second time. Now four years had passed. Uh-huh. Gene was still at large and three Girl Scouts were now dead. Fuck. Yeah. Man's got a troubled past. Back to the present crime. When the district attorney announced that Jean Leroy Hart was being charged with triple murder of three little girls, the town of Locust Grove was divided. You had the people who believed he was absolutely without a doubt guilty. And you had those that thought Gene was being used as a scapegoat. Why? Hear me out. I'm going to play kind of devil's advocate. Can I not? Well, I just, I want, I just, I want to kind of get all sides. You know what I mean? I like kind of, uh, whatever. I understand what you're saying, but I know, I feel like I have a feeling where this is going to go. And I don't. The boot's been convicted multiple times. Right. He may not have done 
devil's advocate, he may not have done this, but he's still not a great person. Anyway, he did. Do we're, getting, it. we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> Those who believed Gene was innocent had no problem voicing their opinions to the media. They were adamant that the DA had the wrong man. Most of Gene's classmates remembered him as a quiet, good looking football star. A woman who had once dated him said that he was a perfect gentleman. Gene's younger half-brother, who already wasn't a fan of the police, said every time something goes wrong, the law always goes to Gene. Well, it's not looking too hot for him. Gene's supporters thought that the sheriff was just embarrassed by Gene having escaped his jail twice and was out for revenge. Some of them even went as far as accusing the sheriff of planting or tampering with evidence to frame Gene. If that were true. If it were true. The guy is still a fugitive. He's still missing before this happened, correct? Mm -hmm. For four years, he'd escaped. So suddenly they just happened to find him. They haven't found him yet. No, but I'm saying like in this scenario, if they do find him, they're like, oh, we just happened to find him this time and we're going to convict him of this. No, they would have been looking for him this whole time. You you get what I'm saying? Mm -mm. Okay. Never mind. (laughs) It made sense in my mind. Um, a little tired. There was also a race, a big race thing, because Gene was an Indian. Oh. So that came a lot into play into this. I get it. To an extent. And that area had a lot of Cherokee people, and they had a lot of reasons to not trust the police. Yeah, understandably. However. He did admit to raping the girls. has been raping, breaking enterings. The evidence is there. People would even later tell the parents of the little girls that they didn't think Gene did it. Why? Fucking shut up. I know. Like, don't say anything. You Don't talk to them. Right. There's, don't say anything to them. I wouldn't even say, oh, yeah, I think he did it. I wouldn't say any fucking no, thing. No, you wouldn't. Because that's irrelevant. God, I don't like that. <laughs> I would fucking fight them. <laughs> Stupid fucking idiots. Jars were placed in local restaurants and gas stations to collect funds for Gene's defense. I don't think Gene did it. Why don't Gene a fuck? Okay. <laughs> The Cherokee Nation also rallied around their fellow citizen. They eventually donated 12500 to Hart's defense to ensure that he got a fair trial. I don't like rapists. So regardless of whether he did it or not, he's still a rapist. True. Fuck Gene and them. The citizens who believed Hart was guilty were on high alert and kept a sharp eye out for him. Not only were they looking for justice for the three little girls, but several organizations had set up funds for the person who could lead the authorities to Gene's location and capture, and the amount eventually reached $50,000. It's just a little too perfect for them to be able to match up all those things to Gene. If they don't even know where he is. Yeah, the search for Gene was proving to be just as difficult as it had been for the last four fucking years. They would find traces of him, but then nothing. The clues would just stop. The scent dogs would get confused and the tracks just seemed to stop altogether instantly. The talk of Gene became almost legendary in the sense that people started saying, and remember, we're in a highly Cherokee Indian populated area. They, they said maybe he's a fucking shapeshifter, you know, because they they believe in that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it started getting to the point where they were like, this guy making it making it mythological. Yeah, mythological? they were like the trail stopped because he shapeshifted into a bird and flew away. And if he wasn't doing that, then they thought he was using Native American magic to elude capture. Because weird things would happen. Like two of the scent dogs died shortly after they were used to find Gene. One of them got hit by a car. One of them died of a heat stroke. So they were like, (laughs) I mean, Gene's fucking them. uh, I mean, both are like pretty. It happens. The car. It's not unheard of. The car, but a heat stroke. It's unheard of for a. We're in Oklahoma in summertime. It's hot. I, it's kind of, when you said cave too, it was hard for me to imagine a cave in Oklahoma because I just see that it'd be like plains. 
I think they were kind of like underground. You know what I mean? Like cavern. Okay. I don't fucking know. Okay. Like a lot of people were like, I don't think they're ever going to fucking find him. But law enforcement began to suspect that people might have been helping Gene stay hidden. Because sure, you can you can hide in the woods for a long time, but eventually you have to go somewhere to get food. And so, like you can only eat berries and drink river water before you're shitting yourself to death. Right. Yeah. Eventually, they got a tip that Gene was possibly staying at a cabin deep in the woods with a tribal medicine man named Sam Pigeon. The tip turned out to be right. Gene Leroy Hart was captured on Thursday, April 6, 1978, deep in the Cookson Hills in Cherokee County, Oklahoma. The state's biggest manhunt at that time. Deep in the hills. Deep. The state's biggest manhunt at that time had come to an end. It had been 10 months since the Girl Scouts were murdered. Damn. Gene Leroy Hart was adamant that he did not kill the girls. He was taken into custody. They took all kinds of samples, hair, blood, clothing, semen, etc. One big issue that the state was going to face was making sure Gene got a fair and unbiased trial. Because there were still a lot of people who felt like there was no way Gene Hart committed that kind of crime. And how was that going to work when it came to jury selection? Like you're picking from a pool of people who none of them think he did it. Like, Yeah, you have to pull you? from people not from the state. So he was represented by a lawyer named Gary Pitchlin, who was also a fellow Native American and a guy named Garvin Isaacs, who is a former public defender in the Oklahoma District Court. The preliminary trial started on June 8th, 1978, and it lasted for two weeks. There were over 100 witnesses called. They said it was like one of the longest preliminary trials they'd ever fucking seen. During the preliminary trial, it was revealed that a warning note had been found several weeks before the killings. Barbara Day, director of Camp Scott, testified that the note had been found in April of 1977 by Michelle Hoffman, a senior Girl Scout attending the camp. During a pre-summer prep session, one of Michelle's fellow counselors had noticed that her belongings had been gone through. Michelle said that a box of donuts belonging to the counselor had been stolen. She found the empty donut box later and picked it up. When she opened the box, there was a note inside written on a folded notebook paper. In capital letters, it said, we are on a mission to kill three girls. That's weird. And it was signed, the killer. Weird. Okay. Michelle said that they turned the note over to the coordinator of the session at the time, and the note was just thrown away. The coordinator testified that when the counselors gave her the note, they didn't tell her that the tent had been ransacked as well. But the threat was just considered a prank, and nothing more was ever done about it. Other information about some weird sightings also came about. One of the camp counselors reported two incidents during the week before the camp began. Two staff members were followed one night by someone with a flashlight. And in yet another incident, a staff member saw a man enter the tent. On the Saturday before the camps opened, the camp director's husband, Richard, came across a stranger walking around the camp carrying a clear plastic jug. The camp ranger, Ben Woodward, found a slashed tent flap with a four to five square inch section removed sometime during the hours before the scouts arrived Sunday. Like you just see these fucking weirdos walking around camp. And, and it's cool. As the ranger, isn't part of your job to like watch for stuff like that? Yeah. That's why I looked at you. Like I was like, see now when, when you talk about like, oh, it's a setup. Cause now all these people are just suddenly coming in almost a year later. Oh, I did see this. Cause now it's matching the narrative. So I get that devil's advocate part, but... So, jury selection began March the 5th, 1979. A jury expert from Santa Barbara was there as well to help make their choices. For 100 potential Jew... 100 potential jurors were questioned. Two weeks later, six men and six women had been selected. None of them were from Locust Grove, and none of them were Native American. 
But doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose? That's what I thought, too. I would think you just You for, need some kind of I, representation. I would think so. Yeah. But we'll see later. Maybe not. Okay. During this time, like, as if there wasn't enough shit going on, during that time, the DA for Mays County, Sid Weiss, had to be replaced because it was found out that he was sharing OSBI reports with people outside of law enforcement, and he was already working on a book deal for the case. So the DA from Tulsa, Buddy Fellis Jr., took over the case. But the fact that the prior DA had lied under oath didn't really help with the public's opinion. Obviously. Like, they're already thinking there's foul play, and now they're like... And now there's really foul play. Yeah, you're... All he's a liar. He's a cheat. Fucking crooked people. Look at him right, trying to write a book. He can't do that. No, my watch. Now we're down to the trial. Trout up, trout up. The trial began on Monday, March 19th, 1979. The parents of Lori, Denise, and Michelle were all there. After they went over how the girls were killed, the prosecution set about proving who had done it. They kind of only had circumstantial evidence. So they tied the cave to the Girl Scout camp through the counselor Susan's sunglasses, plus the roll of masking tape that was used to dim the flashlight. Right. Can I ask a question really quick? Mm -hmm. How far apart was it from the crime scene to the cave? A couple miles. No, like time-wise. Months, weeks, days. Oh, days. Okay. But she would already, had already been missing them. Like she'd already noticed they were gone. Well, some people did bring up the point that they could have been planted, if that's what you're getting at. That mm, is. Yeah. Yeah, no, that came up, too, because she didn't know she was missing them until she went back the next day. Remember? Ah, this all sucks because it's all over the place. And then, yeah. yeah, they also tied the cave. So they tied that cave to the camp. Then they tied the cave to Jean Leroy Hart through the photographs that he had developed at the Granite Reformatory. And that's kind of all they had. And they felt like those two facts would kind of seal the deal for his guilty verdict. No fingerprints matching jeans had been found at the murder scene or on any of the evidence, but there had been hairs found in the tent and under some of the tape used on the girls. So some hair had gotten trapped under the tape they used to like tape them up or whatever. The hairs were determined to have mongoloid characteristics, which meant they were from an oriental or an American Indian. But again, look at where we're at. Yeah. That is half of the population. Right. And the prosecution, they just kind of held on to that. Like, oh, the hair, the hair, the hair. But under cross-examination, a chemist admitted that no two hairs at that time could be positively matched to one another, nor could any single hair scientifically identify an individual. So that really hurt the prosecution. The sperm samples that were taken from the scene it was kind of the same thing. All experts could say was that there was a high likelihood that Jean's sperm was the same that was found on the girls, but they couldn't give a definitive yes. Mm. And again, it was O positive sperm. He had O positive blood. How many fucking people? You know, like that does not narrow things down. Right. So the defense accused the police of planting evidence on Jean Leroy Hart. They said that the counselor's glasses and the photos had been planted. A former person who worked at the jail testified that he, he had seen the photographs in the sheriff's possession after Jean escaped the second and final time in 1973 from the jail. So he said that he had those, the, the sheriff had those pictures. He had them after he escaped. But Larry Dry, the guy who escaped with him those two times, he had supposedly sworn that he had seen those pictures in Jean's possession after they escaped the second time. So there was kind of conflicting information there. Yeah. The guy that was with Jean said, no, he had them. But another guy said, no, he saw them with the sheriff. 
He said, she said, he right. said. This is starting to get wild. So the jury deliberated for six hours on the count of murder for Denise Milner, not guilty. <laughs> Lori Farmer, not guilty. And Michelle Guzay, not guilty. One juror said that they had made up their mind within like the first five minutes. Just because there was, it was so all over the place. I, I get it in the sense that the the prosecution they they didn't really. It doesn't sound like they really proved anything. They didn't really prove any kind of guilt. Right. It honestly, it does sound like they proved a lot of maybe, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. It's likely they could have. But feelings aside, was there definite one hundred percent solid proof? Mm-mm. No. I'm not saying Jean didn't do it. Unfortunately, Lori's mom said after that, she went to Lori's grave and just cried and apologized for failing her. But Jean still had to go back to prison. Yeah, because he still was a fugitive. Right. So he went back to McAllister to continue to serve his 300 plus years for his prior sentences, plus more that had already been that had added on since he broke out of jail twice. Is it justice? No. Yeah. But I mean, I guess he's still you're putting a bad man back in jail, but Mm -hmm. you didn't really get justice for your own children. Well, on Friday, June the 1st, 1979, Gene Hart, joined by his lawyers, gave an interview to tribal newspaper, the Cherokee Advocate, where they announced their intentions to sue Sheriff Weaver. During the interviews, Gene made a statement indicating that he believed the person who had planted the photos in the cave was the same person who tipped off the OSBI leading to his capture. He went even further, saying that his attorneys were almost certain they knew who had done it, but they were going to wait until they could find a witness to verify it before naming a person. A few days later, on Monday, June the 4th, 1979, nine weeks and three days after the trial, Gene was out in the prison yard lifting weights. Then he went for a jog. When he went to go back inside, he suddenly collapsed. Gene Leroy Hart was then rushed by ambulance to McAllister State Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. The people who believed Gene had killed the little girls were happy that he had finally received punishment from higher power, maybe. But those who believed he was innocent suspected foul play. The next day, an autopsy was done. They tested him for every drug and poison imaginable, but nothing was found. It was determined that he had died from a heart attack caused by almost a complete blockage of two of the main arteries that supplied blood to his heart. There was also some scar tissue that indicated he had suffered a prior heart attack that had just gone undetected at the time. Over 2,000 mourners packed into the, to the Locust Grove High School gymnasium for Gene Leroy Hart's funeral. <laughs> So, this is where we're, we're going to get into a little bit of that doubt okay. about Gene. Hit me in with your doubt. In 1984, a recently appointed sheriff named Paul Smith announced that he knew who had raped and murdered three girls and that it was not Gene Hart. He felt that more than one person was responsible in the slayings because after reviewing all the evidence in the autopsies, he felt that it looked like two different types of weapons used to bludgeon the girls. Possibly a tool with a hammer-like head and also like a blunt instrument such as a wrench or a pipe. Also, the children were bound with two different types of knots, which indicated again that maybe two or more people were involved. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't get all into it because it would have added another fucking hour to this. But apparently this guy met up with like an informant in the, the, you know, like a prisoner informant who apparently talked to some guys who admitted that that they did it kind of. I like I said, the guys were already in prison. mm -hmm. And like I said, I didn't 
I wanted to include it, but it would have taken forever. Yeah. And I know someone commented on our Jeff Pelly thing, like, oh, you, you focus too much on the States, whatever. I do want to try to get every view I can, but we have full-time jobs. <laughs> and if all we did was this, then I could, I could include everything. But if you want to know more about that I recommend reading the book Shattered Justice, the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders by J.D. Morrison. And that's where you'll get all that info about who he talked to and what they said and all that. But in 1989, DNA testing was conducted that showed three of the five probes did match Hart's DNA. Statistically, DNA from one in 7,700 Native Americans would obtain these results. But in 2008, authorities conducted new DNA testing on stains found on a pillowcase, the results of which proved inconclusive because the samples were too deteriorated. In 2017, $30,000 in donations were raised in order to do new DNA testing using the latest advances in science. In 2022, authorities made public that DNA evidence strongly suggests Gene Leroy Hart's involvement. Current Sheriff Mike Reed of Mays County said, unless something new comes up, something brought to light that we're not aware of, I'm convinced where I'm sitting of Hart's guilt and involvement in the case. So with the updated technology, it still looks very highly likely that he did it. He did it. Hmm. And there's just, there, there are a lot of similarities. The glasses thing. Yeah, like that could easily have been planted. Like those things could have been, but DNA yeah. is questionable. But it, yeah. So what you were saying earlier about Denise looking like she had the worst, they do kind of think that she might have been the target for whatever reason because she did receive the, the most, worst. Right. Yeah. The most intense. The two other girls honestly were probably killed instantly. Yeah. In their cot. Yeah. Just yeah. blood force trauma. Blood I mean, force hers trauma. was very, very. God. Yeah. Hers was very aggressive. I don't know how I feel about it. I thought he was completely guilty. I still think he's guilty just yeah. because you don't, like you said, you don't just do stuff like that one time. Right. And then disappear and mm-hmm. not do it anymore. Now, I'm not saying that the police part of it isn't sketchy because it is. And again, from what I've read and researched, <laughs> the prosecution didn't really prove anything. Yeah, they didn't. It wasn't a trial that was like definitive. He did it. But- right feelings aside if you're doing your actual job as a juror which you're supposed to be unbiased and whatever whatever yeah you're right i don't know man it's fucking crazy it's a very sad story yeah i knew i knew the like juice of it but all the um, the guts of it yeah all the other stuff about like the what if he didn't do it i didn't know until i started until i started research like the controversy i mean like i knew the race stuff but not the like police possibly planting all that you want to know our question? Let's hear it. Oh, who asked? I think I'm pretty sure it was Morgan's friend Savannah because she asks all the good questions. Well, Morgan's friend Savannah, what's your question? It was what's your dream trip vacation in the USA or the, in the world? Amsterdam. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, we'll talk about that on this one. I want to go to Amsterdam, but I also want to go to Edinburgh. Right. Edinburgh. What did I say? Edinburgh. I want to go to Edinburgh. I want to. Go- <laughs> I'm stupid. I'm tired. Uh, Edinburgh. I want to go there. I want to go to Australia. Down under. You coming with me, Sheila? We're going to Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, just so we could go, Mom. We love Chris Lilly. <laughs> yeah, if you're wondering where that reference is from. Jamey, Mr. G. I'm not even fucking joking. 
I'm being for real. Who Lesbian drank protection my guard. Coke Zero? Jermaine, can I sleep in the bed with you? I'm really tired of the couch. Yeah, but I'm putting up a lesbian protection guard. <laughs> oh my God, you're so funny, Jermaine. I'm being fucking serious. <laughs> yeah, I love that show. What about in the US? Uh, Dream trip in the US? It'd have to be somewhere out west. I was going to say like Utah and Zion. Colorado. Bryce. All uh, that good stuff. Joshua Tree. Yeah. Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. That's mine for the U.S. too. Utah. Yeah. Anywhere out west. Or just like a whole collective trip of the west. Mm-hmm. That's mine Would for be. the U.S.A. For the world, I want to go to Banff. What is that? In Canada. Uh, Banff National Park. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fucking Alicia just went. She did, Fucking didn't she? bitch. Don't say that about her. But She's beautiful, a precious angel. Beautiful bitch. She is a beautiful, beautiful bitch. Yeah. Stupid. <laughs> I still think about how you, how she told that story about the monkeys on the, <laughs> on the playground. <sighs> and in the world. So I've been to Ecuador all around. I've been all around Thailand. I went to Amsterdam. Amsterdam. And I went to Munich. I want to go to Amsterdam. I I do want to go all around the United Kingdom. Uh-huh. And Ireland. Please. Oh, so, okay. We can go anywhere we want to go. Right. So I would have to say my dream world that is probably never going to happen now. I always wanted to go to Russia. Always. And that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, probably not gonna that's never going to happen now, probably. I am a few years uh, late on that. I'm a little scared of Russia, so I'm going to say no. I'm not scared of them. I, no. Uh, and I always wanted to go to Ukraine, too. And those, yeah, those dreams are probably like, out the window. It would definitely be an experience. It would be cool. That's all probably out the window. So I would say, I, um, I guess I'm going to go with dream. It would be those. I also want to go to Norway yeah. and Iceland and Sweden. Yeah. Like, yeah. I want to do all that. I would go there too. I go to all those places. You Fuck it. Let's just go all of them. everywhere. No, Amsterdam is definitely on the top of my list. It was really fun. I cried in Anne Frank's house. Uh, understandably. I made it all the way till the end and then they had her diary and I just fucking cried. I heard my friend Laura's dad was talking about it. It said that um, you have to like book that out and like way in advance to get in the house. No, not really. And it was funny because we got there and I was the first fucking person in line. I bet you were. I was the first one in line. The mirror. And the guy was like, oh, we don't open for... I said, yeah, I know. And he said, I, you... You probably don't have to, like, you don't have to wait. Like, well, I go said, no, away, I'm fine. I, I know what I'm, just fuck off. Man. I know what I'm doing. Because he was like, oh, we, we don't normally, like, we're not going to sell out. You, you'll be fine. You don't have to wait. I said, ah, but, but, but. Shut up. Leave me alone. Leave. leave I'm not me. fucking moving. Leave me. Leave me now. So yeah, I was the first one in line. I want to see the on Frank cost. It was very moving. I mean, it was sad, but I think it was more of the overwhelming feeling of, oh my God, I'm here. Yeah. That made me cry. In the actual space. Yeah, yeah, like, look at where I fucking am. Yeah. And it just made me cry. I was like, I fucking made it. <laughs> I always wanted to be here, and I'm here. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Savannah. You always ask good questions. You always, Thanks, when I post Savannah. and ask, you're, I can always count on you. She's, she's always going to provide. that cares. There's no fucking doubt. She's Morgan's friends. Obviously, she's a good person. <laughs> she could be a killer. So it adds up. You don't know. That's true. Never trust anybody. All right. Well, Ever. I hope you guys enjoyed this really fucking long episode. It was really long. Probably should have made it a two-parter, but... Nah, yeah. fuck them. You know, really, we only do two-parters when we don't have anything else to fucking do for the <laughs> week. <laughs> so, all right. Well, follow us on Instagram if you don't, at lady underscore you scaring us. Tell your friends. Tell everybody how much you like us. If you like us, if you don't like us, don't listen to us Don't anymore. tell your friends. Um, <laughs> give us a good rating on whatever, or don't. If you don't have anything nice to say. Don't say um, anything at all. 
All right. We will talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye.